Welcome to an explosive, fiery episode of Football Frenemies. Who knows what's going to happen? We had to adjust our outline because we've got some breaking news with Michigan football. A lot of uh, the sign-stealing scandal has come to even more light today. I hate to have to cover that, but we'll cover that. We're going to look at all of the upsets and near misses in college football this past week. We're going to look at the Heisman hopeful discussion. Who is entering the race? Who has surprisingly fallen out? And we're also going to take a look at matchups to watch coming up that will impact the conference championship race. What matchups this upcoming week and in the weeks to come are going to have a massive impact on not just the conference championship, but the playoff picture. We'll have that all coming up for you right now. Before we get into all that, Cody, how are you doing over there? As a Buckeye, you're probably feeling pretty good today, I imagine. Uh, what's what's it like over in, in Buckeye land over there? I mean, there's so many memes and things that are just circling right now. There's so many things that you know people are talking about over the last two years. For me, honestly, like I'm a kind of person that, yeah, it's it's fun to poke at it. I've I can't tell you how many times I've texted uh, in the last 48 hours. The fact that Michigan has only won because they've cheated and that's the only way they can beat Ohio State. It's always fun to say that, but in terms of how I actually feel about it, I try to avoid really putting big things out there until, at minimum, there's some good meat on the story, which is, I feel like we actually just got that today. I feel like today was the first time it really shed some light into what's really going on. We still don't have the full picture. We still don't really have... The one thing I'm really interested, we'll get to a little bit more, is kind of motives behind this dude who's uh, essentially doing this, but maybe there's more to unpack in it. But it's kind of funny because if there's one thing that this has actually done for me as an Ohio State fan, I feel like it has just taken all the pressure off of us for the game this year. I feel like all the pressure of this game just got transferred over to Michigan Having this scandal, potential scandal, I should say, you know, having to go through the week schedule until it's at the end of the year. Ohio State's already gone through two really tough games, tough top 10 games, and we've gotten wins. Because, you know, if this is true, we really can look back and say, well, what's the point? Michigan's just going to cheat and they're going to beat us to cheat. So I feel like there's a lot of pressure now on Michigan because regardless of what comes out to light or not, If Ohio State goes into Ann Arbor and wins this game, there is going to be the massive narrative for years and years to come that Michigan had that two-game stretch because Harbaugh literally recruited and sent a Marine (laughs) to go out and go undercover and scout other people. So if there's anything really that I'm feeling, like I feel like it took the pressure off. It didn't take away my desire to win. It also didn't take away the fact that I still 100 believe Ohio State is the underdog in that game. But I feel like it took all the pressure off the hot seat of Ohio State and Ryan Day concerning this game. Maybe that won't necessarily be the case by the time we get to game day. But that's personally just how I feel today. Is I could just laugh about it and poke fun and be like, that's not us. We don't cheat. We just cover up scumbags. So... Uh, I I'm surprised that that's that's uh, the thought. I would think it would be the opposite, where this would be an extra motivation for Michigan uh, to make them 
almost even more angry, which sometimes when you're on top, it can be harder to manufacture outrage. Like, like Georgia last year, they had players mm-hmm. saying they all thought we were going seven and five. Turns out that was something one of their players had made up and just told the team that, Hey, the media thinks we're going seven and five and they just latched onto it. So <laughs> for Michigan, they don't have to make up any headlines. All the headlines are pretty anti-Michigan. Uh, and like you said, there's a lot of that going around where people are going to write off the, the team's previous accomplishments, uh, which is insane when you look at the past two years, the amount of NFL talent that came through. Uh, you look at the coaching, uh, the fact that Mike McDonald, a lot of people point to the turnaround in 2020 uh, where, oh, Michigan was 2-4 and four in 2020, and then they went and won the Big Ten. Clearly, it's because they were cheating. No, clearly, it's because they had a dunce at defensive coordinator in uh, – I already forgot his name. He doesn't matter. Don Brown. Don Brown. Uh, and they replaced him with Mike McDonald, who now is one of the best defensive coordinators in the NFL. Uh, he just killed the Lions. Broke my heart this past Sunday. Uh, he's doing fan- He's doing wonders in the NFL with the Ravens. And mm-hmm. so when you get, you get an awesome defensive coordinator, that's also when they – were able to start upgrading their offensive coordination. Uh, the coaching staff, I think, is that big difference. Now, yeah, if you want to talk about maybe there was some advantage there, but against Ohio State, they have it in the reports. Ohio State knew about all of this going down, and they changed their signals before the game last year. So I uh, can't really write that one off. And if you want to tell me what signs they were stealing to let Aiden Hutchinson just dominate that d- the offensive line in 2021, uh, teach me that sign because I'm going to – teach it to the team this year man that was one of the best games i've ever seen by a defensive lineman uh as far as uh, michigan perspective i'm i'm just angry uh, i think it was summed up best in the jonesing for sports discord today where one of the uh one of the posters said this is one of the best or this is the best michigan football team of my lifetime i've been waiting forever to see a team be what this michigan team is and they're probably going to take it all away from me. I don't know if that's going to be the case, if they're going to have to vacate any games. or uh, I think it's the worst-case scenario, vacating games or championships. But it is disheartening to think of all the accomplishments, all the the hard work by the players and, and coaches, and especially just coming from where we've been, the dark ages of the Brady Hoke era, Rich Rod, um, and even the beginning of Harbaugh era, we, we were – just short of the promised land where we'd win 10 or 10 games or so and you'd think maybe we could do it and we just couldn't so to be have the experience of the dark ages and then come into the light to win a big 10 championship you feel like you finally are kind of getting there and now you have a team that should contend for the national championship uh it just feels like you're getting the rug pulled out from under you or like charlie brown you're wanting to kick the football and and lucy just pulls it away so it's it sucks just plain and simple but i yeah. i do think the motivation is there i think this is going to be a angry michigan team that's looking to prove a point that they don't need any signals to win football games so if i were a betting man and i am and if you're a betting person listening to this i might look at whatever the line is for michigan purdue and go on michigan because i think they're they're going to take out some frustrations in the coming weeks and we'll see. I, I watching that Michigan or I'm sorry, Penn State, Ohio State game. Ohio State's defense is legit. Give them all the flowers in the world. But whoo, those are two incomplete teams. Penn State's defense is good too. Their offense sucks. Drew Eller is terrible. 
And uh, I was not much more impressed by Ohio State's offense other than the fact that they have an alien playing wide receiver. Now, you got to give them credit. They have an alien playing wide receiver. No other team does. But besides Marvin Harrison, man, the rest of that offense is pretty uh, mid, mid-cord. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get past Gus Johnson saying Maserati Marv. Every Maserati Marv. I can't find one person who actually enjoyed that and thought it was good. I'll tell you one hear. person but who enjoyed I, that was Gus Johnson because he said it probably 40 times. He enjoyed it, but I heard a few podcasts that were going like, okay, you got Maserati Marv, and then you got Honda Kyle McCord on the other <laughs> side. So um, that was something I heard a few times. It's it's it was I feel like it was a little difficult to judge OSU in that game. I've said it all season on this podcast. I feel like we really do just know what they are. Great defense, good enough offense with, like you said, a unicorn at wide receiver. We didn't have a Mecca Ibuka that game. We did not have Travion Henderson that game. And I do think that made a massive impact because I do think there was a few running plays that if Henderson was the back, just with his strength and speed, it would have made a big difference. You know, mine Williams did, I guess you could say a serviceable job, you know, chip train him. It's great that he got that touchdown against Notre Dame, but I'm sitting here like, what else has this guy done that he warrants to be the starting running back when Travion Henderson is out? I just, I don't get it. Maybe it's because Ryan Day said, okay, if Henderson's out, we're just going to put the big beefy dudes in so we can prove we're tough. I legitimately think that's the case because as we saw in the Purdue game, granted it is Purdue, but Dallin Hayden just has such a difference in being able to see the hole, being able to make cuts, exploding through it when there's that space. I don't know. The Trainum experiment needs to be done. And I think Mayan Williams will continue to be a good situational back, but we need to get Travion Henderson healthy because there is a massive difference in Ohio State's offense since 2021 when Travion Henderson is healthy. It may not be that he's always getting the stats, but there's a huge difference in how that offense would work when, when Henderson was healthy. So I think they really need him back. And I think it was a lot easier for Penn State to really zero in on Marvin Harrison Jr., which clearly proved to not work. He had a career high in catches and then had 168 yards and a touchdown. And I'm trying to imagine just how much more open he could have been if Abuka was on the field out there with him. Uh, so, I mean, Ohio State has all the pieces, it feels like. Except we need a better offensive line who is barely serviceable, but I guess they're doing just enough to get the job done. And I still don't know what to make with Kyle McCord. Because you know, you know a stat I saw before the game started? He was leading the Big Ten in yards per game in passing. Oh, yeah. he's Every game I check the box score on him, it's always upper 200s. I mean, every It makes game. no sense. It makes no sense how he gets there. Like, every game, like, honestly, against Penn State, it felt like he threw for 175 yards. That's what it <laughs> felt like. Maybe it's just because we had some drives that, once again, we're managing to not turn into points. Dude, I cannot tell you what I was screaming when we did not kick that field goal. Oh, my gosh. I was beside myself when we went for that fourth and three instead of just team. kicking the field goal. You just have to 
Except that's your identity now. Yeah, we're a tough team. Apparently, we're a stupid team too. So, yeah, that that just was absolutely bonkers to me. But the one thing I'm really, really curious about, because it feels like we're trending towards Michigan OSU 11 and 0 again. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the last time we got that in back-to-back years, but I think we're clearly trending that way because Penn State is not what we thought they were in terms of a complete team. They still have a really good defense. However, OSU did still outgame them pretty decently, especially if you take away Penn State's final drive in the fourth quarter. Ohio State almost like doubled their yards in the game. Um, is really, really close to that. And my goodness, is Drew Aller underwhelming. I do think his receivers had a few drops on them, but man, he just was underwhelming. What would, I have, what would you have said if before the season I had told you, hey, Sean Clifford is actually better than Drew Aller? Uh, you know, it wouldn't take a ton to convince me because I just thought he got too, a little too much hate, but I did think that Aller was like his – I thought his floor – was going to be like near what uh, Clifford offered. And I thought his ceiling was just like two times the player that Clifford ever was. So man, I I'm shocked, honestly, that he played as poorly as he did, because if you take that performance and you like put it across the big 10, he played at a bottom of the big 10 level against that Ohio state defense. I know Ohio state defense has been doing that to most people, but Aller looked like he was shell-shocked out there. I mean, he he was missing wide-open throws. I know Ohio State's defense is good, but it's not Ohio State's defense that made him whiff. It's like his, his fundamentals fell apart. His footwork was terrible. His release was obviously off because he was missing guys even in the backfield just throwing slant, uh, screens. So, yeah, I was – I don't know. Apparently, Penn State has seen this because they haven't had – a much of a pass game at all before this, I thought they were holding it back because as a Michigan fan, I'm used to a team holding back a lot of offense to save for Ohio state. That makes sense to me. Apparently that's not the case because man, they could not do nothing through the air. No, Even, I mean, the they had a couple nice tight end pass, you know, plays to their tight end, but wide receivers, they really were pretty much, they looked like Iowa receivers. They did. They looked, they looked like Iowa receivers and, it really makes you think that Drew Aller was kind of hidden behind, first of all, the level of competition, and they really had relied on some of these dump-off passes or underneath passes that yeah. juiced and elevated his stats. And then also, I think just because anytime a big recruit comes in with the 6'5", you know, 230, 240 stature, and has a gunslinger of an arm, I feel like in college we're kind of just conditioned to think that that means it's automatically going to translate. So mm-hmm. I think I think we just gave too much hype for Penn State and Drew Aller in the preseason. Because really, Penn State, they just are what they are. That looked like the exact same Penn State team you've been seeing for the last five or six years. It really mm-hmm. did. And even, honestly, less. Like, Clifford had done decent in Ohio State games. The last two years. Because I want to say in 2021 on the road, he threw for like 275 or more. And then last year at home, I think he threw for over 300 yards. So Clifford had actually found success against Ohio State. And it makes me wonder 
is everything about the Penn State quarterback passing game now, is this all just coaching? Is this just the staple of what you get under James Franklin? Because he's had multiple guys running his, his passing game. He's got Mike Yursich, who was at Oklahoma State four or five years ago. I can't remember who their quarterback was, but they had someone that was slinging the ball around a lot, and he was starting to get his name known off of it. And so, because he spent time at Ohio State too. I think he was at Ohio State for a little bit at the end of the uh, Urban Meyer era, or it might have actually even been a little bit in the Ryan Day era as well. I'll have to look on that to get that for sure. But, I mean, he's he's been around, and to me, this is just striking as this is what a James Franklin Penn State team is. They can go 10-2 and two every year, but they are not on the level. It's very clear that you know Michigan and Ohio State are Tier 1, and Penn State is Tier 2. Penn State has not joined them on that list, on that so tier yet. They still have to work for it. Let's plan a flag then. Does Penn State ever get over the hump and win a Big Ten title uh, again under James Franklin? Because going back to their last one, I personally believe it, it took a miracle. Uh, it and did. some fantastic players, no doubt. Fantastic players, but also – if you go back to that year, they got crushed by Michigan, absolutely dismantled. I believe it was 39-point loss, and they beat Ohio State on a blocked field goal. Uh, and they basically they win even though they – I don't think they were better than Ohio State, and they clearly weren't better than Michigan. Michigan destroyed them. So do you think that – do they ever get back to the promised land under James Franklin? L- looking ahead, if it doesn't happen next year, then no. Because Singleton and Catron Allen will be juniors. Drew Aller will be either a junior or a redshirt sophomore. One of the two. You know, they will lose Abdul Carter and Shot Robinson and Kalen King, but they will actually bring a good amount of the defense back. And maybe some of these receivers they have, they can develop them. Because they'll get Ohio State at home, who is going to be losing Harrison, Abuka, Stover, Possibly Henderson, basically the entire offense besides Kyle McCord, and a decent amount of this defense is juniors and seniors for Ohio State too. And uh, Michigan's entire team will be playing in the NFL somewhere next year, besides maybe one or two guys. So Penn State will be the team that is returning the most players next year, or at least they should be. They get Ohio State at home. And with all Michigan is losing, you might you maybe would say, okay, Michigan is the one we want to take as a road game next year. So if he can't find a way to do it next year when he is the one bringing back the quote-unquote superior talent from these teams, I don't think it happens again. Especially because now you got to deal with Washington and Oregon and USC. So, And that's something I wasn't even considering at first. When I was going that. So when I think about that next year, I'm like, no. Because if you think about in terms of just the way a program is recruiting and developing and maybe can get a transfer program, man, I think Oregon in the Big Ten next year is going to be scary. Uh, so looking ahead, next ge- next year's schedule, they actually don't play Michigan. But really? they do get Ohio State, UCLA, Washington, and, and USC. Uh you you're probably you probably nailed it with that analysis, but I'm just gonna go ahead and plant a flag and say no, because I think that I'm this was their it. year to do it. I mean, so Ohio State is undefeated and has beat two top ten teams. 
I think both of us can agree they're still not like old Ohio State. No. And I, I don't think that that's a compliment. Yeah, their defense is fantastic. And if this last year's Ohio State has this year's defense, I think they win a national championship fairly easily. Oh, my gosh. However, this offense is so far beneath previous years. And you just, short of them making a drastic improvement, I just don't see it with them. And so, so the comparison, I, th- I think they had to get Ohio State this year. They just had to. They had to. I, the comp that OSU, especially after this Penn State game, the comp that OSU is very often getting because anytime you've got a town, you've got a a top five team that at least on one side of the ball they're really talented. We love to make comparisons, right? We always love to be like, oh, who's they like? This Ohio State team gets a lot of comparisons to the 2002 national championship team. Just a superior defense. There was a you know a talented freshman running back, good receiver, Michael Jenkins, and the doctor, Craig Krenzel, back there, quarterback, <laughs> slinging the rock, holy Buckeye at Purdue to get that 10-7 win, right? A 10-7 win at Purdue. Yeah, it's 20 years ago, but still a 10-7 win. And that was a team that the whole season, everyone kept saying they don't look that great. Like the defense looks great. The offense isn't that much, but they kept winning. And eventually they just put themselves in the right position. And then against Miami, Florida, in a little bit of controversy that pretty much just, comes just with. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of controversy. But if you look at it, any crazy win in a national championship or any great game, there's always a little bit of controversy that surrounds all the time. I think that's just natural because you have imperfect people playing the game. So I think they get the comparisons of that a lot, which you could argue is similar because the offense was really carried by Maurice Claret that year when he was a freshman. And you could argue the offense is really being carried by Marvin Harrison Jr. at this point. So I think it's a fair comparison just – at the same time, you know, Miami, Florida was the only team out there that was kind of going crazy on offense, but there's still a lot of teams. Michigan, Washington, Oregon, Oklahoma, and Texas. There's a lot more teams that have these really potent offenses. But there, if you, I've asked anyone who I know was like of age, they could easily remember that Buckeye team well and remember that season. And they've all said there's a lot of the same vibes of the 2002 season that you get from this team. Uh, Yeah, Maurice Claret was the first player I remember hating. (laughs) Absolutely just ticked me off to watch a freshman play that well. Did not understand why my team couldn't have a player like that. Uh, Of course, I only had to watch him for one year, I believe. So that was not not too bad. He he got – talk talk about – when a young star gets the wrong people in their circle and in their ear, Maurice Claret is the perfect example of how to just do it completely wrong. Speaking of Buckeye running backs, I'll end with this question. Are Buckeyes starting to get nervous about Trevion Henderson? Because I can't believe he didn't play against Penn state last year. We have him dealing with a foot injury, knee injury, all that where it just lingers, lingers. It seems like they're like, well, maybe he'll come back, and then he just doesn't. And are we getting into that territory, or are you thinking he'll he'll just be fine? He'll come back for Michigan. The problem is we don't even know what it is. 
Like Ryan Day or anyone from Ohio State has not said what he's hurt with. All of a sudden, going into the Purdue game, we found out, oh, Henderson might be out. And then he was out. Expected to play this week. He's questionable. He's a game-time decision. He's not playing. Ryan Day was asked about it after the game, and all he his response was literally, you know, we literally monitored him all the way up to the game, and once game time came, we just saw that he wasn't ready to go. We still have zero answer on what he's being held out with. I really couldn't even tell you what Emeka Abuka's hurt with. It just says lower body injury. Same thing for Denzel Burke, who Denzel Burke also did not play against Penn State. We don't really know. So I, I don't get it. I don't know why they're so cryptic about these injuries. And I've said it before. There's always been some, I don't want to use the word shady, but maybe confusion is the better way to put it, of how Ryan Day has handled the Travion Henderson injuries over the last two years. It's as if Ryan Day thinks he's glass, and anytime there's even a remote crack, it's you have to hold him out. He's got a scab, hold him out. Needs a few weeks to let that scab heal. That's legitimately what it feels like. And that's and as I said before, too, there was a little bit of tension that Travion Henderson kind of opened up to in the offseason between him and Ryan Day. Supposedly, they had completely patched it up by the spring game. But I don't see anything different this year from last year of how Ryan Day has managed his in-game carries per game. Anytime we got up and the game was over, he just didn't let Henderson get any more carries. Nothing seems different. So whatever frustrations Henderson had, I just I would not be surprised if they were back. All right. Well, we will move on from the state of the rivalry section. We spent a little bit longer than usual, but I think for good reason. We are definitely trending for another all-time showdown between the Wolverines and Buckeyes. So uh, we'll leave that until next week. For now, let's get into the upsets or near upsets from this past weekend's games. Uh, Cody, you want to walk us through how we're going to cover this and, and what specific games we want to take a look at? So there was four big upsets. One of them you may not really count as an upset, but on the betting line and the favorite, there was four upsets, and then there was three near upsets that – um, have either changed conference title pictures or playoff pictures fairly significantly. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go kind of back and forth because I got four games that were upsets, three that were near upsets, and we're going to rate them on a scale of zero to five. How devastating or how damaging was this upset or near upset for the program? Zero will be totally fine, didn't mean anything, uh, and a five is going to be you know, Michael Scott going around saying DEFCON 20 because Jan just walked back into the office after they broke up. So that's what we're going to go with. So let's start with the one that I'm actually most interested to hear you talk about because you've been on their case for a few weeks now. And so this is the one that was classified as an upset, but I would call it the lowest caliber upset on here was Utah beating USC. On a scale of 0 to 5, Brandon, how damaging is this for USC? Well, I'm I'm personally going to place it. I'm just going right off the, off the bat. It's a 5 because this eliminates them from the playoff. And you would classify USC and Lincoln Riley. You pair them together. They should be competing for playoff spots. They're technically still competing for a Pac-12 championship. 
but we all know that's not going to happen. We, if you watched any of this game, especially the end, this is a team that is broken, not just because they don't play great defense, but because there's a culture or some type, some type of issue where they're not bought in. These, I mean, you watch Caleb Williams on the sidelines. The guy, he was completely checked out. He, he was sitting down as Utah was driving down the field, as they were going to kick a field goal. Uh, he was unbothered because he is already, I think, counting his NFL dollars. He, it doesn't matter to these guys. They're, they're movie stars. They're not football players in Southern California. And this is a loss that cements it. This team's season is over. So hopefully, for their sake, they can turn it around and, and have play a good game. I don't foresee that happening. So I think this is devastating. I think that USC is officially on, I guess you could say, quit watch, and it might get even uglier, which is hard to say because it's been ugly so far. Yeah, it's not been a good look for them over the past two weeks. I gave them a four. The only reason I gave them a four was because, yes, they're definitely out of the playoff. But that's their only Pac-12 loss. And if somehow they rally from that, they could still get to the Pac-12 championship game. And they could still win the Pac-12. And you could argue that at least winning that conference with Oregon and Washington and even arguably Oregon State and Utah, who they just lost to, all looking good, they could still come out on top of the Pac-12 going into their move into the Big Ten. So that's why I'm going to put it as just a four because it's really, really bad. But there is still, in my opinion, a slight glimmer of hope. Even though it's not the playoff like they want, they could still get some momentum and ride it into the Big Ten going into next year. The thing that I'll add is that where I, I think this is so devastating, I think that it casts doubt on their Big Ten move because they couldn't beat Utah with Utah's third-string quarterback. I mean, you are going to play a lot of teams very similar to Utah in the Big Ten. In fact, the Utah, uh, the Utah Utes should be a Big Ten school. If they were in the Big Ten West, they would be the annual contender to uh, face off against the Big Ten East ch- champion in, the mm-hmm. Big, in Indianapolis. So if, if USC struggles like they do with Utah, and, I mean, they've got a Utah problem at this point, they are going to have a bad time in the Big Ten, especially, you know, you take away Caleb Williams, you take away however many transfers they're going to have because things look bleak over there. The Big Ten move might start to look pretty dark and dreary, which, all you know, last year you back up just back up a month. You would think USC, they're coming to Big Ten, and they're going to be a power player. And I'm starting to think, is UCLA going to be the team that's going to integrate better than, than USC, it's, it's looking likely. I would say the same thing right now about that. It's a very interesting one. Let's go to the next one. This is one of the near misses for the upsets. And how would you rate on a scale of 0 to 5 Oklahoma stopping a two-point conversion over UCF so they could get the two-point win at home? Where do you put that on the scale? With, with near misses, it's I really think people are going to pay more attention to the number in your win column. You got the win. You got out without – you won your clunker. And so I think it's a one. It might hurt when you're stacking a resume based on eye tests. Like, yeah, you're going to compare a Georgia and Oklahoma 
or a Michigan and Oklahoma, those two teams maybe have the more dominant wins, even though they don't have the greater uh, wins against top 10 opponents. And it might hurt them in that case, but it's not going to hurt them to make the playoff. At that point, you're just looking for a chance. So I think it's a one. As an Oklahoma uh, fan, I wouldn't be worried if, if I was a fan. If I was a player, I'd be like, well, we played bad, but we still won because we're good. So mm-hmm. would not be stressed at all. I would just be happy to escape with a win. Yep. I said two. So once again, we're in the same ballpark, not exactly looking at the same way, but we're in the right area. I said two because, as we discussed last week, OU and Texas, as the winner of the Big 12, could potentially be the conference champion that's on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. And we had talked about what if one of them slips up or they both just start to look poor in their games. Well, as we're going to get to soon... They kind of both played that way. They both didn't have it. And I did think Oklahoma looked a little bit better than Texas in that because UCF has actually been rather pesky. I do think they're better than their record. They have that abysmal loss to Baylor where they gave up that incredible <laughs> comeback. Um, and there's a couple other games. If you look at their schedule and you see what they've done, they're, that UCF is probably better than their schedule suggests. You know, we still think those four teams that came in are kind of the bottom four, but I do think UCF is the best of those four teams that joined, but maybe BYU even has something to say about that too. Um, But yeah, it's a two because it was not detrimental to the program. It didn't really change what we think about Oklahoma football right now, but in terms of their playoff bid and their playoff run, I think now OU has to go undefeated. I think if they took a loss but then beat Texas again in the Big 12 championship, they could still be on the outside looking in. I think Oklahoma has to go undefeated at this point to get in. Yep. The, the only other thing I would add is it, I think it does slightly affect Dylan Gabriel's Heisman stock, which in the end it's a team sport. You know, it's not the biggest thing, but everyone loves it when your team gets a Heisman, especially Oklahoma. If they could do that post-Lincoln Riley, it'd mean a lot to them. So – I think that it does just ever so slightly affect his perception on a week where uh, J.J. McCarthy was basically flawless. So uh, that's the only other thing I'll add. That's good. Let's go to your favorite division in the world, where the Minnesota Golden Gophers Let's go. stole one at Iowa 12-10, to 10, in which... The black and white stripes were clearly rowing the boat as fast as they could on that fair catch play. <laughs> so on a scale of 0 to 5, how detrimental is this to Iowa? <sighs> Do you want to go first because I already have it? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I gave them the infinity sign um, <laughs> because on their home field, trying to be able to make sure that they're going to the Big Ten – West Championship, they could not beat a team who didn't score a touchdown. Yeah, that's tough. And yes, the fair, the kick happened, the pump return happened, but we don't know that Minnesota wouldn't have gone back and scored a touchdown. There was time. Minnesota could have still gone and scored, so I think it was a horrible look for Iowa. Even with the backup quarterback, Minnesota has not proven to be an incredible threat. And as we have talked about all the time, with this Brian Ferentz contract just looming over them, 
you're at home in a crucial game and you get 10 points, like your offense still only had 10 points. I think this is a detrimental look for Iowa. And I do think a significant part is same as we talked about with USC is the Big Ten Conference is changing. And Iowa is going from someone who could win the Big Ten West realistically every year and get to the Big Ten Championship to they need the cakewalk of a schedule to come their way in order to get to the Big Ten Championship going forward. But I just, I would never bet money on Iowa making the Big Ten Championship again because there's no way they're getting any good recruits or probably even through the transfer portal to help boost their offense. And they look abysmal on that side of the ball. So I, I this, this was this was just awful, confusing. It doesn't even deserve a regular number. <laughs> All right, so you gave infinity sign. I'm going to put it straight down the middle and say two and a half because of the guy you mentioned, Brian Ferentz. I think a performance like this cements the fact that no matter how successful you are in wins and losses, a change must happen. Iowa had 12 yards of offense in the second half. <laughs> 12, oh my gosh. 12 yards of offense in the second half. Uh, that is not going to do it, especially in a rivalry game. Come on, man. Like You've got to have some stuff drawn up. When you That's a game you have circled on the calendar every single year. You're play you're playing for a, a bronze pig, dude. Like you, if you can't get up for Floyd of Rosedale, then you you don't know you don't appreciate the game. So I think it's good and bad because obviously it hurts their season. Maybe it helps them in the long run to be like, Yeah, we no matter what, we're getting rid of Brian Ferentz. Twelve yards of offense in the second half against one of your hated rivals. Unacceptable. I agree. Moving on, another near miss, still in the Big 12. The Texas Longhorns getting past those Houston Cougars, in which Quinn Ewers, I actually don't remember if he finished the game or not, but we very yeah, much know now. Yeah, I know, we know very much now that he is taking the AC joint injury. Uh, and it was a game where Texas was up 21-0, to zero, and all of a sudden Houston came roaring back. Did that happen because of the injury or was Quinn Ewers still in when the comeback started to happen? Because I didn't, I didn't watch much so at he all got hurt the Houston game. And they, they did come back, yeah. Okay. So Houston or Texas gets the near miss. Where do you have that on the scale of one to five or zero to five? Uh, so it, it's big that they won, but I think it's bigger that Quinn Ewers got hurt. They're saying that right now there's not a timetable, but that he should be able to return this season. That's not encouraging to me. Like, yeah, you, you're saying that he'll probably be back eventually, but I'm concerned because as a Texas, uh, Texas wants to be ramping up. They want to be playing their best football towards the end of the season because you know you've got a repeat showdown against Oklahoma. If you are trying to get Quinn Ewers back up to speed at the end of the season, you're really looking like you could probably stumble again. And I'm looking back at last year. Quinn Ewers against Alabama started off red hot. You're like, oh, I can see why this guy was a five-star, why Ohio State paid him a million dollars so just to redshirt. Uh, and then he gets hurt, and when he comes back from the injury – 
he was not the same quarterback. Is he going to come back and be gun shy? Is he going to be a little bit more happy feet in the pocket? Is this going to be the sand in the armor or in the system that causes it all to grind to a halt and Texas's season is going to come short of what it should have been. I'm very concerned if I'm a Texas fan. So I got this as a four. Yeah. I have the result of just the score of the game as a one, but the Quinn Ewers injury, I have the same thing. It brings it as a four. I don't think the actual game itself uh, was anything to be too concerned about. You're on the road. It's a conference opponent who you've never really played before as a conference opponent. Sometimes games like that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, no one's perfect. And, you know, they obviously made enough plays to come out winning. But, yeah, Quinn Ewers getting hurt isn't good because now they they put themselves in a position where you maybe said Texas, hey, they don't have to play because they beat Alabama. And even in the OU game, a lot of people walked away thinking that Texas was still the better team, even though OU did everything right to get the result. It was, okay, you guys don't really have to be perfect. You just need to get back to the Big 12 championship, right the wrong against Oklahoma, and you're probably in the playoff. Well, now they're in a position where there is very little room for error now. Very, very little room for Mm -hmm. error, especially now not having your starting quarterback. And so I think it, it has all of a sudden, we went from thinking Texas was probably the best team in the country. Like, like there was a lot of people that were like willing to say that. Like, just we don't think it's going to finish that way. But there are a lot of people willing to say at this point in time, like after week four and five, we're okay saying Texas is the best team in the country. Too now they're honestly sitting fingers crossed, hoping they can still mm-hmm. even get a playoff opportunity. And so that's kind of one of the best parts and marks against college football is people make hot takes so quickly based on one week, but college football can just turn on a dime so quickly. And this week was just a great example of that. And so, yeah, the result itself is a one, but the Quinn Ewer situation is a four. So let's get moving on. This is a very, I'm actually going to, I got two ACC ones to talk about. And I'm actually going to go to the more quote unquote, what I would call monumental upset first, Virginia over North Carolina. I have a weird answer for this. I think that this is a two because I think that this is a recentering loss. When teams like North Carolina or let's say Louisville fly too high, all of a sudden we get delusions of grandeur where, hey, if Louisville continues to win, we could be talking about them as a playoff team. If UNC wins out, what if they beat Florida State in the ACC championship? When they fly so high, all of a sudden you think you're better than you are and you take a humbling loss and then you refocus on what your true goal is. I don't think anyone in North Carolina was talking about playoffs in the offseason. Same thing with Louisville or any of the other kind of upstart teams. They're talking about competing in the ACC and, and potentially maybe you know playing in an ACC championship. This is a game where we can kind of get back to your roots – and say, okay, we got way out over our skis. We need to focus one game at a time. Stop looking ahead. Beat the team coming up this week. So for UNC, it's I think it's almost a good humbling loss. It's hard to say ever it's a good loss. But they were never going to be an undefeated playoff team. 
it was never going to happen. They're, they're not that team. And so, honestly, sometimes it's good just to be reminded of who you actually are. I have a three for almost the exact same reasons. Uh, I didn't call it a five because, to me, this just reminded us who North Carolina is. A good a good team, but you know they're not a premier team that can overlook a lower level team like Virginia and just expect to escape. Like Virginia just outplayed them that game. They look they made Drake May not look like an NFL quarterback. Like Drake May didn't look bad, but he did not look like this number two pick like we were mm-hmm. expecting. I put it as a three instead of a two because even if they did manage to win out. Man, if Virginia finishes like two and ten or three and nine, you cannot have a loss like that on your schedule right. to get to a playoff. I mean, look at Ohio State in 2018. The Purdue game kept them out of the playoff. The mm-hmm. bad loss kept them out that year. And I think at best for UNC, that's what happens. They storm back, but that bad loss keeps them out. But you're definitely in the right spot with what you were saying about they need to be get back to a team who they were definitely very high on what the reporters and everyone was saying. They were top 10. They have Drake May. They had that nice win over Miami at home where they clearly looked like the better team. And it's like they forgot that they had to prepare for another football team next week. I think they literally already started to jump to Florida State. Oh, Florida State. Let's start preparing now. And look what happened. So it's a three because I don't think it's detrimental to them because – as you said, they're not a perennial contender, and they're, we found out they're still not a contender right now. They need a reminder of who they are, and as you said, who they are should be someone trying to prove they can compete for the ACC. So, and then two left. This one is actually the most puzzling of all of them to me, even more than Virginia UNC. Washington and Arizona State <laughs> in Seattle – what, 15 yeah. to 7? Uh, no offensive touchdowns no. for Washington. What happened to this game? <laughs> where, where, so where do you put this? Because obviously Washington is still undefeated. But if they took a loss before the Pac-12 championship but they won, kind of what we just said for UNC, they're the team that actually is there that, okay, maybe you got the wins, but we saw that you actually – are kind of fraudulent compared to this real contender like we thought. So what number do you give Washington? I see this similar to the Oklahoma situation. Uh, I think this game especially was a reminder of how hard it is to be consistently dominant every week in college football, even just how hard it is to, to actually go undefeated. One week you're flying high and you're beating Oregon. And the next, you can't score a touchdown <laughs> offensively against Arizona State, who is terrible. Uh, I actually was trying to go to sleep. It was late, and I had to get up at 6 uh, the next morning because I was going to go fishing. And then I happened to see the score. It was the fourth quarter, and Washington was losing. So, of course, I turned the game on, and I ended up staying up until about 2.30. Uh I still have this as a, I'll just say two. I think it does show some weaknesses that maybe can be exploited for Washington. But also it did seem like Michael Penix just had an off night. He was making throws or missing throws that he usually makes. 
and I think that they're going to get refocused just like uh, UNC gets refocused with the loss. Washington's able to get refocused even after still getting the win. That close call is enough for them to wake up, take every opponent seriously, and try to make sure they get to the Pac-12 championship game. So I'll, I'll put it as a two. I think that getting away with the win is all they need. But just like Dylan Gabriel, we we did see it did affect Michael Penix's Heisman uh, race. He right now is second overall in odds, which is crazy to me because uh, I expect him to probably be there in New York, maybe holding that trophy up. So what, what do you got for Washington? I actually put this as a four. Oh, okay. Because Washington has kind of had a meteoric rise in the past two seasons when they went 11 and 2 last year, got a nice bull win. They went to this season undefeated. They got the Oregon game and they won. And this just feels like it killed all the momentum that they were building. And the reason why I say it's a four is because if they cannot find that momentum back, by the time they get to late in the season. It, it's crazy to say this, but if they come out like that against USC, they're losing to USC. They're not winning that game. And so, and they still got some tough games left on their schedule. They still got to play Washington State at Wazoo. And uh, I don't know if they still have Oregon State on their schedule. They might. I, I thought they just did. had it pulled up right here. Yeah, they're next. So they, they play Stanford, but then they have USC, Utah, Oregon State, Washington State. That's their final mm-hmm. four games. And so tough. if if they don't get a good rhythm back against Stanford next next week, like this could be detrimental to them because it showed that Penix is a good quarterback, but he is he is not God like a lot of us thought he was the first few weeks of the season when he was just putting up absurd numbers in like two quarters, three quarters of play. But this could this could be pretty rough for them because they've had one tough game. And you could argue that Oregon's coach gave them the victory when they played. And now they've got four tough games in a row to end the season. So this is potentially detrimental that they did not capitalize on the momentum that they had from the Oregon game. But rather, they kind of came to a screeching halt. And if they cannot fix this from Stanford, it feels like they're going back to the drawing board. And so it feels like they're in a dangerous place. And especially because they're trying to fight for playoff hopes. They're trying to fight for that opportunity. They want that Pac-12 supremacy as they're heading into the Big Ten. But what happens if they took three losses here at the end of the season? That would be detrimental. We would kind of look back and say it started with that almost miss, that almost loss against Arizona State. So that that just – because Arizona State's one of the worst teams in the Power Five. (laughs) One of the worst teams that was really, really bad. Because like I said, I thought I thought UCF was pesky. Like, if you watched UCF and Arizona State play, you'd be like, man, UCF has a lot more quality on their team than what um, <laughs> Yeah, what watching, watch, staying up to watch that game, I was amazed at how bad Arizona State was. They were trying hard. I will not deny that. There was heart on that field, but there was not talent. There was not execution. It was a rough watch. Uh, the one thing I will say, Washington, last year, I believe you said they were 11 and two, one of those losses last year, Arizona state. So they, maybe they're just one of those teams. That's a roadblock for them. The fact that they're able to get over that still with a win, I think it does 
wake them up and will maybe refocus them for that that gauntlet of a final stretch. So I think it's a good thing for them, and I I think it's gonna maybe propel them through this this final uh, break into the Pac-12 championship. We'll see. I do not share that same optimism, but it is very possible because I just like being a head coach myself. I don't like that outlook of needing a humbling loss. Like it, it stinks. Like I'd like to think that my team, when they're struggling, they can find a way to get success without needing to be brought back down to earth. But sometimes that does help teams. I mean, you can look at Ohio state in 2014, you know, they came out shaking you know, Braxton Miller, the Virginia tech game loss really stunk. And then after that, they were just a completely different team. So it is possible last but not least, and easily my most favorite one to get into Miami beating Clemson in overtime. Where do you put this for the Clemson Tigers? On a scale of zero I'll just to five. put it on a five. They're just they're completely dead. Yep. What, what else is there to say? I literally put, I literally put down five. Clemson is dead. That is what is in my notes. Especially what makes this so bad is the comments that Dabo Sweeney just made this past week. Too. Did you see those comments? The only thing I saw was that he said that that final play was not supposed to be a read option. It was supposed to be a straight handoff. Uh, where the quarterback? I'm talking about before the game. What did he say? He's weak. He talked about how his fans. He said some people probably need to get off the bandwagon that they shouldn't be expecting us to go undefeated every year. That sometimes you you need a team that takes a couple losses because you need to grow or all that stuff. So Davo Sweeney literally just spoke this loss into existence, <laughs> and it's a terrible loss because Miami wasn't looking that great, and Tyler Van Dyke did not play. Ooh. I didn't realize Tyler Van Dyke didn't play. That's awful. Yeah. Siri just told me that's not nice. <laughs> After I'd said his name. So, um, yeah, he didn't play. I didn't know that either until I was looking at the stats of the game. It was kind of a, a headline that I feel like that stayed under the radar that it didn't really get talked about. But, yeah, I mean, it was at Miami. But Miami has to be the least intimidating mm-hmm. home place to play at. They, they don't get students there. There's no student section. There's no noise. There's no factor. It's literally just where the Orange Bowls played. So, yeah, it's this is this is a horrible loss because all of Clemson's losses this year are ACC teams. They're like <laughs> two and three in their conference. It's terrible. Like, it's a it's an awful look for Dabo Sweeney, especially because as he's lost his coordinators that he had for a long time in Brent Venables and Tony Elliott. Now that those guys are gone, it's it. Clemson has just been nose diving down and they don't have any like skill talent. Club Nick is clearly very average. I don't get why Will Shipley is highlighted. Yeah. He's a nice physical. He's got a great attitude, but like, (laughs) I don't want Will Shipley on Ohio state. I have zero desire (laughs) to have him. And they do not have one of these just bruising, devastating defenses like they did for a while. So, Clem- like Clemson is Clemson's dead. They are not the same program anymore. Kind of crazy to see an empire fall. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the Heisman hopeful discussion. Uh, well, I don't know if there's any sort of format you want to go through this, but I just want to toss a softball out to you because I officially have taken Caleb Williams off of my ballot completely. He's on my off too. He's done. I've got, two, I've got two guys. I've got my top five and I got two guys that are out. All right. 
So Caleb Williams is one out. Give me your second out. We'll just knock those out. Quinn Ewers, and it's because of the injury, but Quinn's oh, out. Oh, yeah. And you know what? I actually wasn't really even putting giving him a lot of thought before the injury. It just felt like to me that Texas was more a team and less like led by one star player. Yeah. But I don't know. He is a five-star quarterback. He's going to get more credit. So you're probably on the right track there. But I don't know. I just wasn't thinking he was having like a special season. Yeah. Another note that I had too is um, my whole list is quarterbacks. And I was trying to find, is there a running back or wide receiver out there? And then I had the thought, if C.J. Stroud had stayed at Ohio State, Marvin Harrison would be top of the Heisman list right now. There's like no doubt about it. We would probably be looking at another wide receiver Heisman Trophy winner if if Harrison had Stroud or a quarterback that knew how to hit a cardboard box. So, um, <laughs> Well, let's, let's just get into it. Uh, so it's going to be quarterback heavy. Who's your number one? Bo Nix. What? Bo, Bo Nix is number one. That is shocking to me. I, uh, I just I think he's the most consistent of all the quarterbacks this year. I, I, I still feel like he got screwed by Dan Lanning in the Washington game that he played. I mean, he still got outplayed it. by Michael Penix, though. I, I don't know that I fully agree with that. He, I he was Nixon, good, but I think that I, there was a clear, I think there was a clear. Gap. I, th- I think I think Penix just had more moments than. Isn't Bo that Nix. kind of what the Heisman Trophy's about? It is. is it is. It very much is. But just Bo Nix has been so consistent. He's not turning the ball over. He's got really good efficiency. The offense is clearly just running through him. They've got a really good team. Just. Like, Bo Nix is the guy who he's been doing it, and this is what I'll get into about one of my guys, is he's playing all four quarters of the game, too. He's playing the entire game. That does help. He's, put, he's putting up good stats. He's not turning over the ball. He has a lot of touchdowns because he's got rushing touchdowns, too. At this point, like I said, you're just, you're see, we're seeing guys slowly start to drop off. Either they're just out or their quality is dropping, while Bo Nix has been – just consistent the entire season. And that's what I really like about Bo Nix. And so to me, that's why he's my number one right now. There's still plenty of room for all of these QBs to get their Heisman moments as the season goes on. So that's why right now that we're barely halfway through a season, I'm not trying to get trapped into just allowing a couple moments. I want to really still look at the whole season. And then as the season goes on, as you look at the guys who are consistent, I think now you start to look at, okay, where are those moments that start to separate? You know, in 2019, you look at Joe Burrow at Alabama. There were some other guys that were going toe-to-toe, but then Burrow just said nope at Alabama, Mm -hmm. and he just completely took the rug out of it. So I, I am leaving room for you know, November to be the time where Heisman moments are made. And right now, I think when you combine stats, eye test, and consistency, that's where I get Bo Nix. My number one is Michael Penix. I think even after a abysmal performance, I think it's going to be a blip on the radar. I think if you go back to past Heisman winners, Caleb Williams had bad games. Um, Bryce Young, he had some clunkers. Even his his rivalry win against Auburn, they won, man, what was it, like 17 to 10 or something like that? I don't know. But uh, in the fourth quarter, 
with like one minute left. I think they had three points, and he scored a touchdown to make it ten to ten to force overtime. If if Michael Penix grows from this game, and they go on to, let's just say they finish three and one to make the Pac-12 championship. I really think he's got a very, very high chance at raising that trophy because he's going to lead the country in passing yards. He's going to be up there in touchdowns. And his yards per, per attempt is crazy. The explosive plays, that is what captures viewers' hearts and and I think voters' hearts. When you see a guy that just launches the ball down the field. If you go back to the uh, Oregon-Washington game, so Bo Nix had a good game. He had a very good game. One key difference is his yards per com- completion was 10 yards, and Penix's was like 13 and a half. 10, and, 10 yards is very good. That's high for a quarterback. 13 and a half is insane. Like, it's otherworldly. So, Michael Penix is my number one. If Cody's right and things fall apart for Washington in this last four-game stretch, that, uh, that could knock him off. But I'm not going to go there yet. I think that the Arizona State game was more of a blip. Then, then it's going to be a bomb. Okay. Uh, I have a guess as who your number two is. It is Michael Penix. Okay, I didn't think you were going to go there. If you were going to be down yeah. on him, I thought you were going to go Dylan Gabriel. No, it's Michael Penix. Um, I'm not. I will, I'm not going to drop him like crazy for it. But you know, he he has had a little like his his ups have been higher than Bo Nix, but his lows have also been lower than Bo Nix. And there's been a couple questionable games in there for Washington now. While, like I said, I think Oregon is just more steady. So, like you said, he's, he's got the moments. It looks great in the Oregon game when he threw those two big passes for touchdowns. He's got – he's leading in so many passing categories right now, which is great. But, you know, as we both know, sometimes it's not always the fact that you just lead in something that you end up winning it. You need the whole complete picture. And so, for me, like I said, Bo Nix is just a inch of a more complete right now to me than Penix, but Penix could easily just change it over two weeks. If Penix just came out over the next two games and got back to what he's doing, I would put him right back up top. Um, but, but to me, those two are very, very close. They're very close. But for me, I saw Bo Nix go play a you know a good Washington State team and just keep doing the same thing that he's been doing. And you know, mm-hmm. Penix, while having it at home and having a team that shouldn't be on the field with him, he showed a lot of weakness and. Like, you can have tough games, but having tough games against opponents like Arizona State, that just, that one was really tough for me. Who's your number two? You're going to make fun of me. It is currently the odds-on favorite for the Heisman Trophy. I'm going J.J. McCarthy. The reason I mean, I don't don't have any arguments with that. Like, obviously, I don't have him placed in the same spot, but, I mean – McCarthy has played about 60% of this season probably, yep. but that's 60% that he's out there. He looks really, really good. So what I find interesting is I was shocked because, as I mentioned, I stayed up for that Washington game. Michael Penix is playing terrible, and I am getting Twitter updates saying J.J. McCarthy is now the odds-on favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. And I'm thinking to myself, how is this possible? J.J. McCarthy's stats do not match up to a Michael Penix, a Bo Nix, Dylan Gabriel, you know, you name your quarterback. And so I was kind of grappling with that. And that tells me that people are not caring as much about 
the box score stats. They're seeing mm-hmm. what he is in the three quarters or two and a half quarters he gets to play. And I'm looking at the schedule. If he just continues to do the production that he's done, you know, a little over 200 yards, couple touchdowns, no interceptions, great completion percentage, and he makes those highlight plays and beats Ohio State, wins the Big Ten championship, he's going to have a really good, cha- uh, really good shot at winning the Heisman Trophy, even though his stats aren't going to compare with past Heismans. He's going to be looking at, like, maybe 3,000 yards, maybe approaching maybe 30 touchdowns. Uh, It's a great statistical season for a Michigan quarterback. It's not a great statistical season for a Heisman quarterback, but apparently that might not matter. So right now I've got him at number two because I think he's going to do those things. I think he's going to be efficient. I think he's going to have huge wins coming up against Penn State and eventually Ohio State. And if he's there now, Where's he going to be after massive wins? So that's that's for my number two. Um, who's your number three? Yeah, it would be a, it would. Be, I mean, when you think about it, it would be a really great story if you know going through hardly playing in the season, JJ was able to be efficient, get touchdowns, get and get that Heisman Trophy just for it to be vacated a couple months later. I think that would be pretty awesome. <laughs> um, my number three. I'm very ready to make some controversy in this list. All right. My number three you is Jaden Daniels. Uh, that's that's actually not too much controversy to me. I was shocked by Bo Nix. I'm not shocked by Jaden Daniels. I have him number four uh, coming up. I think his path is similar to uh, Lamar Jackson, or I'm trying to think of, I think there's someone, uh, Johnny Manziel, where your team's success isn't as high as a Heisman usually is, but you get that one big win, and your stats are amazing off the charts. If he can beat Alabama and then obviously just continue his statistical season, I, I think he should probably be higher on my list than he is. Yeah. The reason and I couldn't do beat, it is I don't know about the win yet. Yeah, and if they beat Alabama, you know, I think they would still need an Ole Miss slip-up, but the likelihood is they'll be in the driver's seat for the SEC West again. It just I, I think I think everyone kind of just really wrote them off because they had the mm-hmm. Florida State loss and then the Ole Miss loss, which his stats were insane in the Ole Miss loss. Yeah. It was definitely not Jaden Daniels' fault that they lost to Ole Miss. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's got over 2,500 yards. He's got over 25 touchdowns. He's been really efficient on the ball. You know, Jaden Daniels is the really interesting one. And so if he, if he keeps on the trajectory of what he's doing, they beat Alabama – they get to the SEC championship and they beat Georgia. I mean, if he does those, you would say he's almost a lock for the Heisman Trophy at that yep. point if he just stays on the path that he's going on. It's honestly uh, kind of a shame that LSU has underperformed as a team because we would be talking so much more about Jaden Daniels if they didn't have two losses. They could even just have the one loss. Yeah. If they if they didn't have that second loss, no one would have written them off and everyone would be saying holy cow, Jane Daniels is balling out. No one cares mm-hmm. except for the sickos like you and me. Uh, I already said that he was my fourth. I'll just say really quick, my third is Dylan Gabriel. And it's hard. Their schedule isn't going to have high-profile games probably until they rematch in the Big Ten, Big 12 championship. But statistically, he's been there. And obviously, team success, he's been there. So I think it only continues. His Kaizen campaign is just going to keep chugging along. 
and we'll just kind of wait to see how the ball bounces on conference championship weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Dylan Gabriel is my fourth. Uh, I think the thing that's really going for him is he has the Texas moment. His stats are fine. They're good. They're not world breakers, but you know, he's on an undefeated team. They're top six. He's got that last second pass against Texas. And I think that, so he's, he's definitely got the Heisman moment so far, but I feel like he's still kind of lacking everything else to really get put with it. Um, and then my fifth is JJ McCarthy. I would not be shocked if JJ won the Heisman. If he ends up killing it the last few games, just great the big 10 championship. I wouldn't have a problem with it just based on what I've said about wanting moments, stats, consistency. You know, the one thing that JJ really has is the consistency slash the efficiency. He's his, he's off the charts right now with the efficiency, but he hasn't really had the chance to rack up that 300, 400 yard passing game, which, you know, it's great that he had a four TD game, but can he get that five or can he get that six TD game? And also, you know, that, that signature moment, you know, right now it's just kind of his signature moment really is that comeback win against the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. And so we're kind of just looking for a little bit more significance um, in the win category. And I think that's very it's important coming. for a Heisman Trophy winner. So that's why JJ for me is fifth because everything is still on the table in front of him. We're just kind of waiting for those moments where he really gets to take it. Uh, my, my fifth is Bo Nix for a similar reason because I don't think he can really reclaim that Heisman uh, glow or aura until he defeats Michael Penix in the Pac-12 championship rematch. So I think he kind of just hangs around the periphery and then he maybe strikes at the last minute, kind of like a Dylan Gabriel situation. Okay. Uh, but for me, I just don't think he's going to jump back in a conversation until possibly too late. If a JJ McCarthy, like you said, capitalizes on those big late moments, he could have it almost sewn up before conference championship weekend rather than having to capture it late like a Bo Nix. Uh, you said you only have five. I've got a couple more. So okay. Question I'll, I'll about Bo Nix, though. Okay. What, happened, what happens if Bo Nix balls out at Utah, which has been said to be one of the toughest places to play right now? Because he's got that game coming up this week. What if Bo Nix goes crazy at Utah? I just, I mean, yeah, he kind of sticks around a little bit longer. Maybe he starts to get a little bit more eyeballs, but I don't know. Like, Caleb Williams didn't have a very good game, and they still put up, what was it, 35 or something like that? I don't have the score ahead of me. I thought it was somewhere around there. It was 34 to 32. Okay, so 32. Uh, so Caleb Williams drops out in a, a game where they put up 32 points. Obviously, the win would make a big difference, but... I'm not going to catapult him, but obviously it gives him momentum. And that's just what you need to stack momentum. Uh, but I don't think he gets the full wave of momentum until he defeats Washington. Okay, that's fair. Uh, let's see. You got honorable uh, mentions on there then? I do. And I want you to tell me if you think these are, are plausible or not. Uh I don't have them in any order, though, so I'm just going to kind of go through them. I have Jordan Travis. He's my honorable mention. Uh, I have Carson Beck because I think that there is a world of possibility where without Brock Bowers, he still leads them to victory. He's They've got big games coming up. 
uh, I think Missouri, Tennessee, Florida. If he looks good during those games, he's going to get some shine if they enter the SEC championship undefeated. He could. I just – it feels like until the SEC championship game, he's really lacking that moment. So I think for Carson Beck to remotely get considered, he has got to like average 300 yards a game going forward. Like he has got to prove that he was not good because of Brock Bowers, but rather Brock Bowers was having a good year because of him. So he has to prove that. I think he's got to have some really big stats because he's got he's got to find a way to get himself in the conversation by the SEC championship, but you got to look at all these other teams that might be doing it. Dylan Gabriel might be, you know, out there trying to get it in the Big 12 championship. Jaden Daniels might be on the other side of the SEC championship. Penix and Bo Nix might be going at each other trying to get it. So, I mean, all those guys that you look at that he could be competing with at that point, I think he has to find a way to be leading them in stats by the SEC championship game. And then he's got a ball out better than the rest of them in the SEC championship game. So it's not impossible for Carson Beck, but I think that's a serious uphill climb. Yeah, it's one of those things we'll have to kind of wait and see. But I just I see him kind of crouching in the grass, if you will, like ready to strike. And if he rises to the challenge, I could I could see him making a trip to New York. The last one, you kind of mentioned this. I think Marvin Harrison Jr. has an outside shot. The reason being, clearly his quarterback isn't going to be the one getting all the highs in love. If Ohio State wins out, they beat Michigan, uh, clearly you got to give some highs in love to an Ohio State Buckeye. It's not going to be McCord. It's going to be Marvin Harrison. And you said if he had C.J. Stroud, his stats would be insane. He doesn't have C.J. Stroud. His stats are still insane. Uh, against Penn State, he had, what was it, 168 yards in a touchdown? He was unguardable. And his stats are going to be fantastic. And if you're looking at Ohio State, a playoff team, they're going to give a lot of love to him. It reminds me of Devontae Smith uh, for Alabama because they didn't give the Heisman love to Mac Jones. They gave it to Devontae Smith because they said, Alabama's not amazing because of Mac Jones. Alabama is amazing because of Devontae Smith. And uh, I think they had Jalen Waddle as well on that team. Like they just said, the skill players should get the the praise. So we're going to give it to one of them. And Jalen Waddle had an injury, so they gave it to Devonte Smith. I think yeah, Marvin Harrison Jr. has got a real shot. I think it's a decent shot, but I think you would possibly be shocked. I don't know if you have, but just look at what Devonte Smith's stats were just halfway through this season. I guarantee he's probably got 250 yards more than what Harrison had through seven games. And the one thing that Harrison could really use more of to really get the Heisman shot is touchdowns. I think he really needs a lot more touchdowns. He has only, I think he's only had one game this season with multiple touchdowns in the game. He only had one against Purdue. He had one against Penn State. Um, you know, he, didn't, he didn't score against Notre Dame, nor did he really have that big of a game against Notre Dame as well. He did bang up his ankle a little bit, but... I think for Marvin Harrison to be seriously considered, I think he needed his second best game to be Notre Dame. And right now his second best game was not Notre Dame. He didn't have anything close to the Penn State game. I think if he had done that against Notre Dame, he could easily be in the conversation. But I think for a wide receiver, I I don't think the stats will add up. His impact for his team is clearly there as a Heisman contender. But 
I don't think the stats are there now, and I don't see the stats coming. That's necessary. I certainly hope that he is not in the discussion, but I just think that there's a, a possibility, so I had to, had to mention him. Let's jump into uh, the matchups to watch for, the matchups that will determine conference championships and eventually playoff participants. Uh, I, I'll just go ahead and start because I think I have more conferences to cover than you. I want to jump into the Big Ten, and I'm going to cover one game from each division because for one more glorious year, we get to enjoy the Big Ten West. And let me tell you, this is going to shock you. I am looking forward to Minnesota, Wisconsin, because there is an outside shot that if Minnesota wins out in the Big Ten, which is very possible looking at their schedule, they could be, based on tiebreakers, they could be <laughs> they could be your representative of the Big Ten West. The the uh, Wisconsin Badgers have owned this rivalry, but if Minnesota wins out, that is a game I'm looking for because I would love to see neither Iowa or Wisconsin make it. So Minnesota, Washington, the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe. Now that one's not as obviously a big game, but I as a sicko have that circled. Uh, Probably should have found a better one, but that's the one I circled. And I also have Penn State, Michigan, in the East, obviously Michigan, Ohio state is going to be the game to watch, but if Penn state can steal a game from Michigan, then you get that three way tiebreaker scenario that everyone has been talking about all season. What if, what if, what if, well, we can actually start talking about it when it comes to Michigan, Penn state, Penn state's got a lot of stuff to figure out before that. But right now that's the game to look forward to. Is this going to come down to Michigan, Ohio state, or is it going to be that three-way split everyone's talking about? Where do you want to go from here? I'm going to go to my darlings in the Pac-12. Um, and th- this one was tough to try and narrow down two games because there's no divisions. But knowing that there is a conference out there, that two conferences that still has divisions, I kind of tried to nail two down there. Um, I think one of them is happening this coming weekend. And I alluded to it earlier. I think Oregon at Utah is a massive game in terms of because I think Oregon has a chance to kind of solidify themselves Mm -hmm. because they don't really have that tough of a schedule after Utah. It's really just Oregon State that's the only challenge left for them. And so if Oregon wins this, I think we will see them coast to the Pac-12 championship. But if Utah can pull this off with third, second, fourth string quarterback, whoever it is, because Cam Rising is shut down, you know, all of a sudden Utah finds themselves in a big driver's seat because they've already they've already played USC, beat them. Already played UCLA, beat them. Mm-hmm. Already played Oregon State. They did lose to Oregon State. But now they would have all these games out of the way where um, Utah, if... You know, they play Washington, and if they did lose to Washington, but they could hope that maybe Oregon has another slip-up game somewhere. Or, no, I lied. Oregon would have their second loss in the Pac-12. So if Utah Mm -hmm. beats Oregon, they can take a loss to Washington and still possibly get to the Pac-12 championship game. So Utah, I think, has really been under the radar in the Pac-12. And this Oregon-Utah game, you could, like, it's early, but is almost like a play-in game. The winner of this game could very easily get in. Um, 
So that's how I viewed that game. The winner of this game is going to be the opposite team from uh, from Washington, in my opinion. I re- I really wanted to find an Oregon State game that I could call was going to be a big like one of the top ones. I do think Oregon State has a few intriguing games left, but if you're talking about just like the earth shattering results that really changed the result. As much as we are down on USC, I still think USC-Washington is a game that changes this. Because if all of a sudden USC comes in here and they are able to upset Washington and put a loss on their on their schedule, like that really, really opens the door for some chaos. Because you could be looking at, I think, possibly three or – if USC beat Washington, I think you could be looking at three or maybe even four teams – with one loss, I think it's three that could have one loss in the Pac-12, and there could be some interesting things to get their tiebreaker because it's not divisions; it's divisionless. So it would be really interesting, and it is Washington at USC for that game as well. And so, and these are all happening in the next two weeks. Oregon, Utah's this week, and USC, Washington is next week. And I just have to say, I still love how the Pac-12 is like almost a prime time game every single week. It's so yeah. great. It really has been great. Uh, man, I just I can't believe how hard you, you hit that take out of the park. The Pac-12 has been the conference to watch. Uh, the conference that's usually the conference to watch, the SEC. It's not hard to think about what, what game I have circled. I'm looking forward to LSU Alabama. It's mm-hmm. coming up. November 4th, so we don't have to wait too long. And that will determine who's most likely going to face Georgia in the SEC championship. So LSU, Alabama, it's at Bama. Every year it's a great, a great game. And I, I just, I can't wait. So I don't have a lot to add to that one other than the fact that we already covered it. It could be the Jaden Daniels Heisman game. So have that one circled. Uh, Take us to the ACC. So, the ACC was kind of difficult to peg down because even with Miami's win over Clemson, I don't really see them as a contender down the road. Obviously, Clemson's out. UNC just took that loss to Virginia, Virginia, and I feel like Florida State's going to coast. So, it's ironic. I actually have both the games revolving around one team because I think they have... Uh, the toughest schedule probably remaining in in the ACC, but I think they're going to be the ones that can make the biggest impact. How it is so first is Duke and Louisville. Duke and that's Louisville. one I had, yeah. So because they're each one loss in the ACC, and this so mm-hmm, it's this week, and they're both looking to to get away. And so if if Louisville wins, I think Louisville very much claims the driver's seat for. Um, to to get to the ACC championship game, but another game that is very interesting, and I this will depend if Duke beats them. But then Duke North Carolina, which is normally reserved for that big basketball rivalry, Duke and North Carolina, I think more than likely are probably actually going to be playing for the right to go to the ACC championship game. It mm-hmm. seems like can Duke get their rematch against Florida State, or can North Carolina? get in there but ironically if louisville were to lose to duke but unc beat duke and then clemson beat unc 
Oh, boy. And then Miami sits there with two losses still in the ACC. Dude, you're looking at four. Dude, there could be a four-way tie for second <laughs> place. How do you figure that out? Like, that's that's actual chaos right there. That's insane. Mm-hmm. I, I live for chaos. That's Honestly, I think that's the best-case scenario for the ACC if they want yeah, a story and they want attention. They need that, that chaotic run for the second place because Florida State is coasting at this point. Like... They're coasting and they're not even looking like that they're playing their best. So yeah, yeah it looks like they played their best early on. Like it, they started with LSU. Yeah. It feels like they're <laughs> kind of going down. But that second half with Duke, they might have kind of hit a little bit of a resurgence with that second mm-hmm. half against Duke. But yeah, I, I, it, it's weird that it feels like the ACC has revolved around Duke so much, isn't that? They've been such a hot That's topic in the bizarre. ACC. Yeah. Wow, Clemson, I keep forgetting sometimes that Clemson is a team. <laughs> That's what happens when so, Clemson is dead. But, but this Duke-Louisville game, I think, will say a lot. It will, it will either cement Duke as a contender to get back, or Louisville will win the game, and they've got a pretty easy schedule. And so it will come down to who slips up, Louisville or UNC. So like, if Louisville beats Duke... Like I said, like it, it really just more of who slips up between North Carolina and Louisville. And originally, you would have thought North Carolina wasn't going to slip up. Then you saw what happened against Virginia, and you're like, shoot, are they going to slip up again? Because they do play Clemson. And if they could do that against Virginia, they could easily do that against Clemson, too. Mm-hmm. So bring it on home with the Big 12. I've got two for the, the Big 12. And it's actually interesting when I looked at it. You would not have thought this. I've got Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and that is November 4th. So in two weeks, we look forward to most likely a game between Oklahoma with an undefeated record. Uh, They have a a trip to Kansas, but uh, Oklahoma State currently has one loss in conference. I didn't realize that because they have like three losses overall in general, I think. Mm -hmm. But they're only three and one. Yeah, that I saw that too. That is... Bedlam all of a sudden just like got a little yep. bit of spark to it. For it to be a massive rivalry game, and of course there's the added bonus, if you want to use that word bonus, that is they're not going to be meeting again for the foreseeable future because of Oklahoma's move to the SEC. Yeah. There's that added want to. And if Oklahoma State could win this game and win out, they would technically have a tiebreaker over Oklahoma for the spot in the Big 12 championship unbelievable to think that's a possibility so that game has got me intrigued (laughs) and lastly i've got uh texas iowa state because iowa state similar to oklahoma state they're not very good but they also only have one big 12 loss the thing about the big 12 is you can be very bad but you know who's worse all the new big 12 teams that join this year some of these teams are basically only playing the byu's of the Big 12 or the UCFs or Cincinnati's, they they just do not win. And so Iowa State is currently also only a one-loss Big 12, uh, one-loss in conference Big 12 team, and could also knock Texas out of the they could. Big 12 championship picture. They could. And right before we're done, there's one team I kind of just want to talk to you about. All right. BYU. Are you aware that they're five and two? They're five and two. I'm not aware of that. They're two and two. So they are two and two in the Big Twelve. Okay. See, I was and one of the and one of them was and one of them was a loss to Kansas that they kind of gave away. 
but they're two and two. And coming up this weekend is BYU Texas, and Texas does not have Quinn Ewers. And That's guess big. guess who else BYU still has on their schedule? Iowa State, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. So BYU Team has chaos. all the teams. All the teams ahead of them are on their schedule, along with West Virginia. So dude, B- BYU could sling together five really good wins in a row if somehow they found a way to do that. So I don't, I don't think they will. I, I, I cannot see them beating Oklahoma. But to be honest, without Quinn Ewers, I could see them beating Texas. West Virginia, no problem. I, they get Iowa State at home. They do get Oklahoma at home, and they go to Oklahoma State. So BYU is kind of an unsung uh, team to think about because I I didn't pay attention to BYU at all, and I was looking through Big Twelve. I was like, they're five and two right now. And See, I saw that uh, two weeks ago they lost to TCU forty four to eleven, and TCU <laughs> is terrible. I was like, oh okay, BYU is trash, and they they still might be, but yeah, I did not expect a five and two record to follow them. Although man, you look through the schedule, it's pretty. Pretty bad. So it's gonna it's gonna work up. Uh, gonna ramp up. That's definitely a little bit tougher. They could easily up be five and seven after that too. Yeah. Easily be five <laughs> and seven. We'll keep uh, an eye on on BYU. Uh, I think that does it for this episode of, of Football Frenemies. Uh, we appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We're looking forward already to the matchups next week and and ahead. So we thank you. We'll catch you next time on Football Frenemies.